0: Good morning. I'm meteorologist Rick Demile. You're listening to The Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio Chicago. It begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
1: Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki at the Factory Farm Summit demanding accountability in animal agriculture at the Radisson Hotel in Green Bay, Wisconsin, hosted by the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, and welcomed by the Oneida Nation. And uh, this is Lynn Henning Farmer and 2010 Goldman Environmental Prize winner. I wanna ask you what it's like to be an official troublemaker in the world.
2: It's wonderful to be um, able to bring this issue to the forefront, even if it does cause problems and and, uh, bullying and harassment from the industry. It's wonderful to know there's people behind us that want the right things.
1: And you're a Michigan farmer.
2: I'm a Michigan farmer. We farm-
1: and I'm from Michigan originally, so from the same home state. And it, the talk you gave about getting the prize, the uh, the Goldman Environmental Prize, is inspiring. Uh, but it, there's a lot of hard work behind that, isn't there? And, and a lot of pain.
2: Uh, getting the Goldman Prize was a total surprise to me. Um, the work we did on the ground was for our family, for our neighbors, for our communities. And you don't look at getting rewarded for doing what you should be doing anyway. But it was a nice honor. But the issue was winning the Goldman Prize opened the doors on the issue and helped bring it to the forefront and get attention from legislators, senators, governors, and people of importance across the country.
1: Uh, We're talking to Mike Wiggins, Jr., former chairman of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Mike, that was a, an amazing talk you gave tonight. Because we, on my show, uh, have been following the, what's going on in, uh, in uh, North Dakota. This is uh, a seminal moment, uh, isn't it, for uh, First Peoples in America?
3: Well, I, th- I think it's, um, it's definitely galvanizing tribes uh, across the land. Uh, you know, out in North Dakota, the, the pipeline resistance Uh, You know that issue is resonating the 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 notion that uh, In the fact that water is life and uh, that some of these these corporate activities are are really endangering communities For at least the foreseeable future um, Maybe even uh, into you know those thousand-year time frames Um, You know the tribes are are transcending I guess you'd say the capitalist model they're transcending state and federal laws that are rigged to benefit corporations and they're just standing up as as uh, people of the land of the water under natural law saying enough's enough Uh, you know we have to live here and and we're going to live here for the next thousand years and and uh, you know you're seeing resistance it's a beautiful gentle resistance too
4: Live from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, just this side of the concrete-encrusted banks of the north branch of the Chicago River, it's the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program, heard every Sunday on Q4 Radio and at MikeNovak.net.
5: Good planets are hard to find Temperate zones and tropic climes True currents and thriving seas Wind blowing through breathing trees Strong goes on and safe sunshine well, Good planets are hard to find
2: It's a
4: long way to Tipperary. That's why he's riding the Megabus. Here he is, Mike Nova.
1: Peggy Malecki is here, sitting next to me. We're at uh, the Radisson in Green Bay, Wisconsin, with the Factory Farm Summit put on by the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. And, and Peggy, good morning. Good,
6: good morning. We've good morning, uh,
1: Mike. we've we've survived it so far.
6: And it's a gorgeous sunny day outside. It was nice to step outside in 55 degree fresh breeze
1: isn't that amazing and well and, and we'll talk to rick de later about that but it's just great to be here at uh this uh wonderful event we've got the chicken wandering around here
6: chicken hey, man
1: the the chicken man and uh we um uh have a boatload of people on the program this morning and you should have seen us furiously putting everything together last night after the amazing dinner uh here at the factory farm summit but put on by Srap and a, and a bunch of folks from all over the country are here and we're now to set the scene we are outside uh the convention hall right now where the activities are going on so we're not in there we're, we can't hear what 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 the speakers are saying but we have all kinds of different folks who are going to stop by our table and chat with us about the issues of factory farms. We're on tribal land here, so there's the casino.
6: Right, right.
1: Uh, which is right next door, uh, which we, of course, don't have any time to partake in. And you and I are not... Or gonna, extra
6: cash. Uh, or extra
1: cash. <laughs> well, we work in radio. Uh, so um, we're going to start today uh, with uh, the person who brought me into all of this um Several years ago, and that's Karen Hudson. She'll be here in a. In a few, mm-hmm. No, no, you're fine, Karen. Hi, she's waving from across the room, and and I think she panicked for a second. She thought, Oh, I'm Wait. on the on the radio. And the yet. chicken
6: is eating a cookie. I uh, know chickens eat cookies. Yeah,
1: uh, and uh, she'll be here with Attorney uh, Danielle Diamond, uh, who is the executive director of S. uh and and we will get things started. But Karen is with uh, also with uh, Illinois Citizens for Clean Air and Water. Uh, which is a fabulous organization and sheep is the one who sort of got me on this track of examining this issue several years ago so we've been following this for a long time uh, I, and by the way i want to give a big thank you to george Burgandy. um i don't i don't have a, a dinger here um oh, we don't, i didn't bring my don't dinger. Have the dinger i should have brought my dinger um don't have it ding, ding. <laughs>
6: Oh, I your heard it there. It there,
1: there it was, that was George. Your phone. Was that my phone?
6: Yeah, just oh, my. Dinged.
1: right on, right on schedule. That's really strange.
6: So, thank you, George.
1: Uh, and uh, so we appreciate George is at the studio, Q4 Studio in Chicago, Q4 Radio, sixteen eighty AM, www.q4.org, um, and uh, we we appreciate him doing that. Um, and if you go to my website, MikeNovak.net. You will see, we've written a lot about what's happening here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but there's a lot of other stuff mm-hmm. going on in the world, and we're going to touch on just a couple of things before we get to all these different interviews about the factory farm issue. I This caught my eye, and so I decided I wanted to really uh, talk about it very briefly because I love what's going on at Wicker Park garden club and at wicker park they have all uh, doug wood and his folks over there always doing amazing things um and they're having this thing called midwest circus in the parks uh and it started as a small group of f- performers in europe and has evolved into an organized non-animal emphasis non-animal act uh touring circus uh creating community raising funds and rebuilding parks one circus at a time
6: yeah so we've got the um the circus in the park it's a great fundraiser um, also there is quite a lot of other things going on um, one of them we first met katherine agin at the advocates for urban agriculture soiree back when mike and i attended in august And they have their big Grober Urban Farm Celebration coming up September 24th in Evanston. This is the first year they've incorporated a teaching garden for middle and high school kids. And they're going to be celebrating the graduation and doing a big fundraiser. Um, It's a great way to see urban agriculture in action. And you can get your tickets uh, if you go to the Grober Urban Farm website.
1: Well, except that we've got
6: it. org.
1: Oh, and it's always on my website, Mikenovak.net. Go to this, the information from this week's show. And I believe we have Martha Boyd on the phone. Uh, Martha, are you with us?
7: I am, finally. I'm so sorry.
1: That's all right. No problem. <laughs> we're, we're, we're still here, and we're glad you're uh, uh, able to join us for a couple of minutes. Um, we were just promoting the annual Windy City Coupe Tour. I heard you. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I've been sitting here
7: by the phone waiting for it to ring, and I don't know why it didn't.
1: Oh, okay. I
7: restarted (laughs) it and then then called you. Uh,
1: Well, okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about the 2016 version. What do uh, folks have to look forward to?
7: Like um, every other year, a bunch of people have decided they're willing to share their backyard with the public. And they um are on our map. I'm um I'm hearing an echo, so if I sound a little confused, that's why. But um
1: I was just gonna say there's no echo here, so uh, you sound fine okay, and good. I'm sorry it's hard to talk so you know, maybe just take your, your ear away from the phone for a second.
7: Um, on um Saturday we have eleven hosts and on Sunday we have five and another four are open both Saturday and Sunday. Uh, that's... And they all have different things going on. Um they're just regular folks for the most part that have backyard chickens. Um and because they're interested in this kind of stuff, most people also have, you know, gardens, maybe bees, other things that they're doing at home as
1: well. How many how many years have you been doing this now?
7: Yeah, this is the seventh.
1: Seventh. Okay. What has changed in seven years of doing the tour
7: not that much uh we added uh we went up to two days after a year where it rained, you know cats and dogs, <laughs> <on the laughs> right. nation, <you> know? <laughs> so that we um hopefully would get at least one good weather day out of the weekend, also many of the hosts that. I would love to get out and look at other people's coops, so I'll host one day, and then I'll have a day that I can look around.
1: Okay, well... Uh, uh, but
7: otherwise, over the course of the seven years, it's been about 90 different host sites. Any given year, it's somewhere between 15 and 25.
1: And they're not all within the city of Chicago?
7: This year they are. We have had some of the near suburbs and even Hammond. <laughs> Indiana as locations over time.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, and again, if folks want to uh, participate, what can, uh, how, do, how do they do that?
7: Yeah, uh, so there's a Google map, and all the sites are, are linked, and you can make your own itinerary. It's free. We just ask that people come um, to the site when it's open between 10 and 2 mm-hmm. on the day that it's available and um, not bring a dog.
1: Please don't bring a dog, (laughs) um,
7: and also not plan to use the host's bathroom.
1: Ah, otherwise, ah,
7: ah. yeah. (laughs) Otherwise, it's make your own itinerary and go to one or all twenty as you wish and are able.
1: Fantastic. And uh, if they want to take uh, advantage of it, where where do they go to register or to find out the information?
7: Yeah, no registration necessary, and the information is on the Chicagoland Chicken Enthusiast website, um, chicagochickens.org, and click on the Windy City Coop Tour page, and then the links that describe the host sites and the link to the map are there.
1: Fabulous. Uh, Martha Boyd from uh, Angelic Organics Learning Center and the Windy City Coop Tour. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad we were able to sneak this in because I, I...
7: Same. Thanks as always, Mike, and thanks, Peggy. Thanks, Martha.
1: All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.
7: Okay, great. Bye-bye. And it's... Karen and Danny are here.
1: Oh, my goodness. And it's the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM, Q4.org. Uh, we are broadcasting live. We are broadcasting live from the Factory Farm Summit in Green Bay, Wisconsin. As I mentioned earlier, um, a woman... Uh, who has uh, helped me uh, understand the uh, issues. Oh, you've got the other mic. Great. We can bring that up as well. Um, I- involved in factory farms uh, because she is the email queen, uh, and everybody knows it. Right, Danielle?
8: That is correct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you ever meet uh, Karen Hudson, who is a farmer, and it's how she knows about this stuff, Um, Be careful what you wish for if you ask for information. Um, But she's sitting right next to me, and she's a lovely person, and she has witnessed firsthand the damage uh, that factory farms can do. Uh, And I, first of all, I just want to say hi, and I think this is the first time we've done live radio face-to-face, because you've been on the phone, or we've recorded it, but face, you know, here we are live and
9: so glad to have you here today, Mike. I think last night was a great kickoff to a lot of information and energy that we're going to be exchanging today.
1: It was. What a fabulous dinner! Um, we, I started to say that, and I think I got—I in, interrupted myself, which I do a lot. Um, I, I, I had um, Garden Design Magazine once wrote about my show and described me as highly distractible. Uh, that was there. That was. Oh, you too.
9: Yes, okay. we're, one, we're two of a kind. Okay.
1: Uh, a, a little, uh, a little uh, ADD yeah, going on that, here, I think.
6: That was an amazing dinner last night. It was uh, some locally grown produce, if I understand correctly, the root vegetables and the squash uh, prepared by the Oneida
9: Nation. Correct. The squash was actually um, discovered. These seeds were discovered, and they were dated to be 800 years old wow. in a recent archaeological dig, and they planted these, and one of those squashes was served last night.
1: Is there a chance of my uh, scamming uh, some of those seeds?
9: We're going to get you some seeds, Mike. Oh
1: a 800-year-old squash, because I didn't get to eat any of it last night. It was gone by yeah. the time I got there.
9: Yeah, I'm sure I didn't even get a taste of it, but I'm taking a seed home, and I, I will promise you some seeds that will be traveling back to Chicago today.
6: Wonderful, wonderful. All right,
1: and, and before we move on, uh, describe how they were found.
9: They were, I know little about it, but it was found in an archaeological dig here in Wisconsin, and they were in a sealed jar. And apparently, this kept them in prime condition to be planted 800 years later. They've been dated, and it's almost like a miracle. So we're, we're, we're very, we were honored to to have that as part of our, our dinner last night.
1: And it's a word to the wise, to gardeners everywhere, um, don't just toss your seed packets uh, because... If if they can survive eight hundred years, you know if you if you've had seeds around for a couple of years, a lot of them are still viable. It's just the way nature works. Nature wants to survive. Uh, plants want to survive, and so they built in this uh, s- system where the seeds remain viable for years. So all right. So let's get to this uh, conference. We we started talking about the the dinner last night which was amazing because not just because of the food but because of the speakers Um, and I was um, uh, really really impressed by the people I saw on stage and they were from Wisconsin and and from Michigan uh, and they were talking about how horrible some of the uh, situations are with factory farms in other states I thought it was very interesting one of the speakers pointed out that it we used to call them CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations. Now it's kind of switched over to factory farms. Is that is that a strategy? Danielle Diamond, let let uh, who is the executive director of the uh, socially responsible agricultural project? Is, is is are you trying to gain control of the message by calling them factory farms?
8: I don't know. If, I don't know if we're necessarily trying to gain control over the message, but I think the factory farm. Define, calling them factory farms gives the public the image that they need to have when we're describing what these facilities are. We're not talking about uh, the idyllic uh, farms with animals in a pasture of years past. These are huge industrial scale um, livestock production facilities that are, they're industrial in nature mm-hmm. and uh, they're essentially factories producing animals.
1: Well, I think it's more descriptive.
8: Yeah, so you're talking thousands and thousands of animals. Correct. Sometimes tens of thousands of animals.
1: But when you say CAFO, it, it, there's a disconnect Some, in a way that when you say factory farm, and one of the speakers last night pointed out that in some circumstances when you're dealing with people who run them, they won't even let you say the words, right?
9: No, they don't like that word. Um, it is industrial, and they like to pose themselves as family farmers. In fact, the PR that we see in our town in, in central Illinois, we see PR, um, and often they show a, fam- a farmer standing next to a red barn and a pastured animal. Um, that's, the, that's the impression that they, that they keep pushing on the public, and that's not the right impression.
6: So are you talking mostly hog farms, cattle farms, chicken, any and all? Any and all, any and all, yes.
1: And and of course, we saw some of that in the film uh, At the Fork, which uh peggy and i both sponsored our our, you know her organization um natural awakenings chicago magazine and the mike novak show and and we're actually going to have some people associated with the film here today one of the guys that was in it and he said i was sitting next Next to him him. at dinner last night and i just i i know you i I know you i've seen you before (laughs) and then it clicked and i went at the fork he said yeah i was i was in that movie i went wow okay we're gonna talk um uh, on my left is karen hudson uh from illinois citizens for clean air and water and srap and uh on uh peggy's right is uh danielle diamond uh, who's the executive director of srap um karen you're the one who kind of introduced me to all of this in the past what is your story
9: uh, my story is that I'm a, a city suburban girl, born and re- born and raised in the Chicago metropolitan area, uh, went to high school in the suburbs, and ended up in central Illinois, married to a farmer. Uh, I've been down there about 38 years. I did not understand what factory farms were until one came into my community, um, and we learned on the run that these were something that my legislator wouldn't even protect our community from. So we we learned as much as we could, as fast as we could, uh, we call it the sound science, and that was 20 years ago. So I've been at this for almost two decades, and my brain is filled with that sound science now. And wherever we go, that is what we, we speak, and we have that to back us up um, when we say we need a more sustainable agriculture.
1: Is that why you're making inroads into it, Danielle Diamond? Because uh, uh, after all this time, you've managed to bring the science into it.
8: I think it's science, and I think it's it's trying to give a voice to the people that are being impacted directly I, I I I honestly believe the more that we get people's stories out into the public the more the public understands what's really going on in our rural communities I came into this issue I had no idea I had no idea what a capo was I had no idea what was going on in in Illinois where I'm from until I I came into contact with Karen, and I came into contact with other researchers, and it's, you know, it, it needs to be exposed, and the more it is exposed, I think that's how we're making inroads, definitely. And the Chicago Tribune came out with a recent article, The Price of Pork, I think it was the first um, really good, solid investigative report that, that exposed what's going on in Illinois, in our rural communities. This is a crisis, and um, I, I think we're finally making progress based on that report
1: uh and for folks who haven't seen it uh, i've linked to it on my website again this week so if you go to this week's show you can see that and it's a long series i mean the, the tribune um took a lot of different angles on this and worked with you guys from what i understand karen
9: well i've noticed that in in these series uh that there are many folks that we have worked with over the past two decades. And uh, their their story is finally have, has a spotlight on it. The Tribune has done two other uh, series on this, but none has gone into such depth and 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 talked to these neighbors and talked to the producers and really gotten to the meat of the matter. So we think this is a turning point in Illinois, and we'd like to see some. Uh, some changes come about because of it. We've heard, we've heard that it's gone all over the state. This article is being reprinted in, in newspapers downstate and across the state line. In Iowa, we've heard from the Trib story. So it's really made an impression.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is It's got to have some kind of impact when you get a major paper like the Chicago Tribune uh, writing about this issue. So uh, is that a game changer?
9: We hope that it's a game changer. That's why... Um, We were so happy to see that printed in an urban area where folks may not realize how factory farms affect them. And my big big concern is public health and antibiotic resistance. There are people uh, that are dying every day of MRSA and other diseases from superbugs. And we're seeing that some of that is coming from factory farms, which use about 80% of the antibiotics in the U.S., in the absence of disease, just to promote growth. But the side effects are, are bad, uh, catastrophic for the public health sector.
8: It is an opportunity. We, The public is aware now. The jury's out. The science is in. We know this is a crisis. Now we know what, what the state of affairs is in Illinois with regards to this issue. And this is a huge opportunity for some of our lawmakers to take a step in the right direction. I think that's... Um, you know, I, I haven't seen that happen yet, but that's what needs to happen. Well,
1: the the article just came out, you know, last month. Yes. So, but I,
8: but I will say that um we have been trying to address this issue with our regulatory agencies and lawmakers and um public officials for uh, I know Karen for decades, right. myself or I think I'm going on over, you know, close to 15 years now. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I mean, we've known these issues. In 2008, we filed a petition with the U.S. EPA to take away the state of um Illinois' Environmental Protection Agency's authority to administer the Clean Water Act for confinement operations because it was failing to do its job. That was back in 2008. We knew that there were these problems going on. And still, they're still there. So, yeah. Um, Someone should be stepping up to the plate, I think, at this point.
1: Well, when you say that, who are you looking to step up to the plate? Because you, you've you appealed to the state legislature. One of the things that Mike Wiggins, Jr. last night and Lynn Henning and Gordon Stevenson, uh, when they spoke, brought out is that the laws in other states are bad. But as you guys have pointed out to me, the laws in Illinois are worse.
8: Correct. Uh, at the Social Responsible Agriculture Project, we work all over the country uh, trying to assist communities that are dealing with the, uh, negative impacts of factory farms in their areas. And so we respond to calls for help from communities all over the country. And when we get those calls for help, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are problems everywhere with these types of operations. There's no doubt about that. And people ask me all the time, can it get any worse than this? Our state isn't doing anything. What are our options? How do we address these problems? Could it be any worse? And what I say to them, yes, you could live in Illinois. <laughs> you, and I, oh, and I, I love Illinois. I'm, you know, I'm from Illinois. My roots yeah. are in Illinois, but I will say there are no options for people. People have no, you know, the very little ability to protect themselves and to address issues, even, you know, issues, our state agencies that are supposed to be regulating these things, um, there's a lack of standing because of bad case law in Illinois.
1: Yeah. Well, it goes back to the the initial law uh, that was passed in, what, 96? Um...
8: Correct. The Livestock Management Facilities Act. It, right. Um, and because of some bad case law that came down in the past, I think it was in 2000, sometime around 2008, uh, the Traditions uh, it was Holmes versus AJ Boss, a traditional meg- mega dairy. Uh, the court held that uh, citizens and surrounding neighbors don't have standing to challenge uh, permitting decisions <laughs> by the Illinois Department of Agriculture. it's so, it's it's
1: it's it's, um, y- it's, it's bizarre, is it, what it is. Is it, that is that we've just taken the rights away? It's Kafka esque. Is what it is, is because we live in a situation where the only people who have standing are the people who are building the facilities. Correct. Because one of the things that has been pointed out, and if you read the articles and talk to people like you, um, is that county boards can meet and they can say, we don't want the CAFO here. And the the Department of Agriculture says, "Um, that's all well and good, but uh, you don't have the final say on that we do.
10: Correct. So the
1: people are... It's taxation without representation in a way.
8: It is. And, um, and, these, and a lot of people that we work with, they feel these are, these are takings without just compensation. When one of these facilities gets sited near their property, their home, uh, they can't reasonably use the, their home or their property the way they used to. And they don't get compensated. And they have no real rights to address the problems that they're experiencing because they can't even challenge a permitting decision. And their local governments have no 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 authority to step in and or to zone and there most other states in our region and across the country there's a level of local control um, all of these types of facilities have to have permits people have the ability to challenge those permits if the d- agencies aren't uh, making adequate permitting decisions that is not the case in Illinois
1: it's it, it's mind-boggling. It's what it is. By the way, that's uh, attorney Danielle Diamond, who's the executive director of SRAP, the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. Uh, Peggy Malecki and I are up at their Factory Farm Summit in Green Bay, Wisconsin, broadcasting on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM at Q4.org. Karen Hudson is also here uh, from Illinois Citizens for Clean Air and Water. We have just a couple of minutes, but one of the things, uh, Danielle, I wanted to get to is how you want to change the laws in Illinois. You have, you have a laundry list of things that you would like to do. Can we just very quickly go, sure. go through them?
8: So one of the things that we would like to see happen is all concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, should have to register or um, themselves with the Illinois EPA. So okay, now i,
1: I got to stop you right there. <laughs> because this is something last year that Karen, I, I met her at the food, Good Food Festival, Uh, and she introduced me to this idea. We don't know in the state of Illinois how many factory farms there are because there's no registration. Is that right, Karen? Yes.
9: It's it's a sad thing. It's a public health issue. It's a food security issue as well. Where are they? And we're trying to find that out, and we're actually mapping them ourselves.
6: And I would imagine most people in the state of Illinois have no idea that nobody even knows about it. No.
9: That's what we're trying to do is educate folks that... Here we are, a grassroots citizens group that is that is mapping these CAFOs that the EPA has no accounting for. Doesn't
1: the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Natural Resources, the Governor's Office, our our General Assembly, don't they have a lick of conscience about this? No. Uh, no. <laughs> there's, there's the short answer, okay? They do not.
8: Well, there's a lot of industry pressure to, to not regulate it. We actually had this registration... Um, this type of um, requirement in a set of proposed rules that went before the Illinois Pollution Control Board a couple of years ago, and they were in those rules, but when the rules went to the um, Joint Committee on Administrative Rules in the legislature to get signed off on, it got politicized, and um, it got taken out. Um, And so, and we worked very hard to get that in there, but it got taken out because the industry groups have a very powerful lobby, in my opinion. I believe that's what happened. Uh, But moving on. Yes. The Illinois Department of Agriculture issues construction and siting permits for these capos, but once they get constructed, there's no one watching. We believe all of these facilities should... Uh, be required to re- obtain some kind of operating permits or permits that prevent pollution once they're operating, and those permits should be issued by the Illinois EPA. So there's some and regulatory not after the fact. Correct.
1: Because now it's
8: after the fact. You have to catch them. It's, it's the like, it's like
1: the, uh, the, the Enbridge pipeline going under the Straits of Mackinac. There, the problem is until it leaks, there really isn't anything they can do. But once it leaks, we'll be on it like you know ticks on a deer.
8: And oftentimes, though they don't require permits at, at that point, if they correct the problem, then they might not receive these permits. But this is a mechanism that most other states use to control the pollution coming from these facilities, and they do it for all other industries. Um, it, it, it should be done in Illinois. Okay. Um, there is a loophole under the livestock siting um, law in Illinois that is administered by the Department of Agriculture that, essentially, to simplify it, allows a livestock operation a con- confinement operation to almost and sometimes even more more than double its size every two years without having to abide by more setbacks um, a more intense environmental review that they would require for new facilities and so basically once you get your foot in the door you can expand exponentially every two years and and that's it and so most people know when a livestock facility gets built near them it's going to get bigger, and there's nothing they can do about it. That's, not that that,
1: that law or that part of the law is just stunning in its uh, brazenness.
8: And then the other thing that I think is very important, and I would note that many, many other states that we work in have, is a local county governments, local municipalities have a level of control over whether or not these facilities are constructed in their communities in Illinois, county boards only have an advisory role. They can weigh in and tell the Department of Agriculture whether or not they believe a facility might meet certain criteria to be constructed. But that's simply um, an advisory role; it's non-binding. And we've had many county boards give negative recommendations to the Department of Ag, and those facilities have been built anyway. And it's just an exercise in futility for many of these county boards to even be involved in the process. And Many, many other states um, allow some level of local zoning, local um, land use permitting of these types of operations, and Illinois needs to do something along that line. So um, these local communities, our county governments, people at the local level who know best on whether or not these types of facilities are appropriate for their communities have a role in the decision-making process
1: are you finished with the list or is there still more
8: uh, i think we need to give landowners neighbors impacted citizens uh communities uh you know standing the ability to challenge bad permitting decisions yeah with the sighting law basically it's, it's a responsibility <laughs>
1: well yeah no i know you could and and we're out of time here but uh it's we have we have no rights for people who are affected by these facilities and it, it kind of just boils down to that do you give representation to average citizens
9: correct to the best of our knowledge whenever a county board is, has made a no decision to these after a public hearing uh it's never been turned down by the department of ag they've to the best of our knowledge they've never turned down a facility it's it's a sham and it's something that people need to have control and the local control is is what we're what we're always looking for
1: uh, and that is something uh, that you pointed out to me. And we played the audio on my show several times of the Department of Ag lawyer uh, in Illinois going before judges, a panel, uh, and getting caught, basically, uh, because they asked her point blank, has DOA ever turned down uh, a CAFO permit? And she would, oh, uh, I really don't know. Uh, I'd have to look that up. And, you know, that, that means no. We have not. We've never turned it down. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you're a lawyer. You you, you know she got caught.
8: Yeah, well, and I, I we've had conversations with the Department of Agriculture about this, and I think it's their position. They don't believe they have the authority to turn them down. And, you know, oftentimes they'll ask for more information, um, maybe ask for amendments to applications, but they don't believe they have the authority to turn them down. But that does beg the question, there is that, a you know, the applicants do have the ability to appeal permitting decisions. So I think that's in place in case they do get turned down for a permit, but it's, it's a, it's a matter of interpretation, but
1: Uh, we just, uh, before I let you go, we just, you know, from the, our studio audience here, uh, (laughs) there is only one way, you know, a note was just handed to me. There's only one way to stop these CAFOs. Stop renting your land. They need must have access. You, the landowner will decide your County's future. Just stop doing it.
9: We've done a covenant in our county where the neighbors agreed not to allow the facility to, to spread the waste on their property. That, that, that's their biggest problem is their biggest liability is the amount of waste that they have to dispose of. Yeah. And if... If landowners can get together and say no to that, that that will help. I'd like to say that Illinois has won the race to the bottom, so I have a blue ribbon for them today.
8: And, <laughs> and Mike, if I could say, if people do want to know what, what they can do, I mean, what Illinoisans can do, there's I think there's two things. Number one, contact your legislator and say, this is an issue I care about. Please do something, number one. And mm-hmm. number two, I mean, we support this industry with our food dollars. You walk in the store, you buy meat off the shelf you buy dairy you buy it and by doing that you're supporting this industry so pay attention to what you're buying and most often you're you're supporting this industry if you're not paying attention find your local farmer find the the farmer get, that's doing yeah. it right. Get the app from Support Crate Free them. Illinois. You know exactly. Yes. Yeah. Support that, them. They drive
1: down for the restaurants, road. too, and not just
9: stores. I drive down the road or up the road, up eighty to Illinois or to Chicago, and I hear this ding on my phone, and the Crate Free app pops up, and it tells me what I can get two miles from where I'm driving. That's sustainable. It's wonderful.
8: It's wonderful.
1: Right, go to Crate Free, Illinois. Uh we're way over time here. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thank uh, you
8: for being here, Mike. Thank you for having oh, us. Oh,
1: this is uh this is a must for us and I'm glad that, that we're we've been part of it. Uh, that was uh, Karen Hudson and Danielle Diamond, um both from the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. We have more folks coming up on the Mike Novak show live. This morning from the Factory Farm Summit in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, um, we need to do some business. The September-October issue of Chicagoland Gardening Magazine has hit the newsstands. I hope you have your copy. If not, you can... Uh, You know, you can order it. You can always get a subscription. Uh, There's a terrific article by Kathy Jean Maloney about a $7 million restoration project at Chicago's Jackson Park. It involves landscape architects, engineers, historians, and ecologists in an effort that she says might be the first time such a significant landscape has been restored with an equal emphasis on history and ecology. And then there's my column on the inside back page. Of every issue. Oh, no. Yes, I know. Many people have tried to renovate my words, but sometimes things are just broken beyond repair. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state gardening magazines. Go to ChicagolandGardening.com. But if you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to StateByStateGardening.com or call 888-265-3600, 888-265-3600.
6: Well, it's September already, and you might have missed your opportunity to get the the Mike Novak discount, but this is still a great time to order your native plants online. Order from native communities, native plants. Mm -hmm. Owner and operator Nick Fuller was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he says that like non-natives, it's a good idea to get the plants started now before the cold weather hits. There's all kinds of plants you can get started as plugs now, like liatris and coneflower and coreopsis and sedges and even ferns. Fuller says that if you're new to native landscaping and looking for a good launching point, take a look at their native plant kits, as they have a pretty solid palette of native landscaping plants to start with, from shady and sunny to wetter areas as well. From there, the sky's the limit. Plant with Chicagoland's native plant source, Natural Communities Native Plants. Go to naturalcommunities.net and tell them Mike Novak sent you.
11: This is Suzanne Malik mckenna for Chicago Wilderness. When you think of our region, wilderness may not be the first thing that comes to mind. Did you know this area is home to more than half a million acres of protected nature with thousands of plants and animal species? Our local native wildlife need your help. Now is the time. 12 Animals in 12 Weeks is a campaign to get support for these critical species and their habitats. Sponsor one today. Meet the species at chicagowilderness.org species.
12: Spending more time at home these days? Give yourself some room. Renovate your basement or attic. You'll increase your living space and your home's resale value, too. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687, for your remodeling needs, including additions, renovations, and other home improvements. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com.
6: Hey, this is Peggy. When I speak at local events, people often ask me, aren't you the Peggy in the Natural Awakenings ads? And that makes me happy, because it reminds me that Chicagoans want to live healthier lives, A Natural Awakenings magazine helps them do just that. Natural Awakenings its the greenest, healthiest magazine in the Chicago area. Each month, we bring you the latest information about health and wellness, complementary medicine, fitness and exercise, raising healthy kids, and even healthy pets. You'll find articles about healthy homes, too, including gardening, energy efficiency, and green living. And if you love good food, you'll always find tasty recipes and cooking hints. Check out our monthly calendar. It's full of events to help keep you connected. Natural Awakenings is available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Chicago and suburban Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. And it's free. Or visit us online at nachicagonorth.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more.
1: And welcome back to the Factory Farm Summit in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 a.m., q4.org. Peggy Malecki is here with me.
5: Yes. It's a gorgeous day here today.
1: It's a a beautiful day in the neighborhood, uh, and I wish I were outdoors, actually. (laughs) But I'm happy to be here with the folks who are stopping by, and we have another couple of folks, uh, and that's Mary Doherty. Uh, is that more or less? Yep,
5: that's right, Mary Doherty.
1: Uh, Mary Doherty. Here's the description I have: mother, author, chef, photographer, and activist in Lake Superior.
5: <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> why,
1: why are you laughing about that?
5: Because it's just hilarious. No, it's great. That that pretty much <laughs> that, that that nails it. All
1: right, good, good, good. Uh, well, are you officially associated with? I mean, obviously you're part of SRAP.
5: Yep, I'm. I'm on the board right now, and I'm going to be starting working with them in October. But I, I have a CAFO coming into my community. And so I, we started a, a group called Farms Not Factories. And I'm also the president of the Sustain Rural Wisconsin Network, which is the Wisconsin statewide coalition of all the grassroots folks dealing with this scourge on our rural landscapes.
1: I figured there was more to the story than just mom mm-hmm. and author and chef and right. photographer. Yeah,
5: wait, wait. That's the fun stuff. Yeah, uh,
1: And uh, on your right... Uh, on, uh, uh, Peggy's right is Nancy Utesh, is that a? That's correct. Good oh, morning. Good morning. Uh, Kiwani citizens advocating responsible environmental stewardship. Uh, and of course, Kiwani is, this is where we're at. Uh, Her- correct yeah uh
13: pretty much ground zero for 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 the problems that we're experiencing with farm runoff and manure
1: all right well we'll start with the the and we'll get right back to you mary um what what do we need to know about how the land is being in in Kiwani, wisconsin um how do we need to what do we need to know about how the land is being despoiled here
13: Well, a unique feature um, in Kewanee County is that we have karst topography, and what that means is we have very shallow soils, and what's underneath that is um, kind of pocked bedrock, and it makes us very vulnerable to water contamination. Currently, 34% of our our wells that have been tested are contaminated with either E. coli or nitrates or both. So um, we have a pretty serious health and water crisis where we live, and uh, we have 16 KFOS currently.
1: 16 KFOS. I'm sorry. I know. I just. It, it, you know. I'm. I'm a random access guy. He hasn't okay? had I enough just, coffee yet. Yeah, I know. I've had too much coffee. Is okay. what the problem is. Um, 16 KFOS in the county. Correct. Uh, and, and and of course, you border on Lake Michigan.
13: We do. Um, in fact, there are more than a few facilities that are, are fairly close to Lake Michigan. There's one that's about a mile and a half um, from my home that would just be a few miles from Lake Michigan and then is very close, uh, less than a mile, to three recreational lakes that we have in our town of
1: Pierce where we live. So how, what's being done to protect the freshwater in Lake Michigan? From the, from the runoff of these CAFOs?
13: Well, I think currently it would be uh, fair to say that a runoff that's going into Lake Michigan is not being addressed. In fact, in our community, uh, we were actually hoping that the Great Lakes Compact would be a saving grace for us, and we're finding out that that's not true because there is considerable runoff going into our streams and tributaries that do make their way into Lake Michigan and create all kinds of problems for our local beaches and waterways.
6: What would the compact have done to prevent this?
13: Well, we were hoping just that if, if people had an awareness of the, the volume of the kind of uh, contaminants that are going into Lake Michigan, that that would warrant the compact to come in and realize that our Great Lake needs protection from factory farms.
6: So would that be the county or the state who would be stepping up?
13: The state. Okay.
1: And and one of the things we heard last night, last night was uh, it was just a remarkable uh, indictment by uh, Gordon Stevenson, who is the former chief of runoff management, Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, is, you know, about what Wisconsin is not doing, along with a lot of states that are not stepping up. Uh, and unfortunately, as he said, uh, it was remarkable when he said that the management of the Department of natural resources in in Wisconsin has returned to the time before nineteen twenty eight when it was citizens uh, Aldo Leopold and some friends got together and said, "No, no, no, citizens really need to decide what happens and how this is managed and that was that way until very recently um, T- and, Tommy Thompson yeah Tommy Thompson, it. but the democratic governor as well said no we don't need to change it back Um, and so we're in a situation where you're at the mercy of big business and their cronies
13: absolutely we are and we see that every day Um, our uh, the attorney in Madison uh, Brad Schimmel has has put forth his opinion about high-capacity wells that are, are draining uh, the lakes and streams in various uh, areas of the state. And he's, he's one of the problems, but there's many, many problems across the board. And the basic concept is these agencies that have been put in place to protect the citizens and the environment are completely defunct.
1: You know, I'm, I'm, I, had to, I had to call up the map of uh, Kiwani county and um i'm kind of curious because it straddles the peninsula here uh and so generally where's the runoff going is it going uh, east into lake michigan or west into the bay
13: it's going into both areas. In fact, the bay has a humongous dead zone. I mean, this is... But
1: that doesn't surprise me at all right. yeah. yeah You know, you've, you've got a small body of water, and Absolutely. you're pumping all these nutrients in there. You're going to have dead zones.
13: Absolutely. And we have 16 capos, but uh, Manitowoc County has 17... Brown, where we're at today, has 24. So you can imagine the cumulative effect of the kinds of farm runoff that are going into Well, half
1: of your county is in Lake Michigan. That's (laughs) (laughs) according to the map here. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
13: And you're in the city of Green Bay today. And if you flew in, you can get a pretty good idea of how um, big the city is. And in Kewanee County, we actually have um, manure there that is nine times the human waste equivalent of what is generated in the city of Green Bay.
1: As we heard earlier from Danielle Diamond and Karen Hudson in Illinois, we don't know how many CAFOs are in the state, uh, factory farms are in, in Illinois. What about uh, Wisconsin? Are there numbers?
13: Uh, there are numbers, and there's been a huge proliferation in in the KFO numbers in the last, I would say, especially the last four to five years. Currently, I believe uh, in the books we're at around 235 that are recorded, but there's many, many, many expansions that are taking place, and there's many new permits that are sitting on desks. So we will definitely. And I they're, think, all gonna,
1: they're all going to they're all going to be approved, obviously. Uh,
13: I'm I'm sure they will be, and I, mean, I think I think the dairy state is is definitely evolving into the CAFO state
1: yikes all right well then then again and guess what folks Uh, we're polluting Lake Michigan but it gets worse let's let's go to the largest Great Lake Lake Superior uh, with you know the biggest body of water and arguably the cleanest um, and talk to Mary Doherty what is happening up in Lake Superior
5: so I live in Bayfield The city of Bayfield and in Bayfield County, there's a hog farmer from Iowa named Dale Reichs who wants to move in and bring his 26,000 hogs and their 10 million gallons of manure into a watershed that feeds Lake Superior. And why that's important is that the city of Ashland, which is the largest city in my community, 8,000 people, they get their drinking water from Lake Superior. And so the DNR, there's a program called Source Water Assessments, and it's something that's part of the Safe Drinking Water Act. And municipalities are tasked with making sure their drinking water is safe for their citizens. In the DNR's own assessment of Ashland's drinking water in 2003, they said that Ashland's drinking water is susceptible to runoff from the South Fish Creek Watershed. That's precisely where Dell Reichs wants to plop his 26,000 hogs on. So, te- te- I'm not overstating the the threat here. There's 8,000 people's drinking water is directly in the crosshairs of a corporate farmer who's t- just in it for the for the money. Well,
1: we're not just talking about 8,000 people in the drinking water. We're talking about Lake Superior, okay, which feeds mm-hmm. uh the the Great Lake system. Uh and and once you start that and you open the floodgates there and you know, the flood happens to be waste, uh, we're in trouble.
5: Well, I agree, but I do think that it is important to talk about the drinking water because it's a, it's a very accurate picture of what's going on in this state. This state is choosing to support industry over its citizens. This state is choosing to sacrifice the commons for private gain. This state is choosing to turn a blind eye to something like Kiwani. You know, when I met Nancy probably two and a half, three years ago now, I realized that she, her community where people live and raise their children and go to soccer fields and go to church and live their lives is that you can't drink the water. And that could happen in my community. That's happening all over. And so it really put a fire in our bellies to say, no way, this is not going to work.
1: All right, that's locally up there. What are you trying to do statewide to to change i mean it, it it sounds like um overwhelming obstacles you have in your you're shrugging okay
5: okay because i i think that yeah absolutely you know I, yesterday someone said to me well the dairy business you know they they're 40 billion dollars or something but what 40 billion dollars tells me is that they're a giant that they're entrenched that they're not nimble they're not reactive they have a very particular playbook which says we feed the world You know we're family farmers. This is economic development, and what what citizens are tasked with doing is looking at that narrative and saying we don't recognize those words. We're going to do something different, and that's what we did in Bayfield County. We passed a ground a precedent setting operations ordinance that we we developed, recognizing the state has taken away our ability to say no to a CAFO. So we developed an operations ordinance that allows us to regulate the operations. At, that are not already preempted by the state. And one of those conditions are we, the CAFO owner has to post a bond mm-hmm. to operate in our community. We passed a, um, a manure storage ordinance that the DNR rejected, which is now our county is appealing. So there are things that can be done on a, on a local level that will percolate up to the state level.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. All right, I got from the studio audience here. This is great. People just keep handing me these little notes ask Nancy about being blacklisted what is that all about Nancy
13: Uh, the DNR blacklisted 19 individuals and my husband Lynn and I were were on the list I think we were the only um, couple married couple that were on the list. and basically, uh, If
1: I had my, my my bell here, I would give you a ding for no. that. It's like, congratulations, you, it's a badge but, of honor.
13: But you know, th- yeah. there was there was four individuals that were grouped together, though, and I was wondering if that was a family. The interesting thing about the blacklist is there hasn't been a lot of information that has come out about those 19 individuals. I, myself, as a blacklisted individual... And when, when you're
1: blacklisted, from what?
13: Well, the, the premise was that... Um, there was not information that was to be given to us. and, and From and, the state? Yes, from, from the state. And so they were going... <laughs> it's, from, from, it's the, from the DNR agency. Did they cut
1: your telephone lines, too? Or, you know, or, they did. And, and block actually, your cell
13: service? Actually, the agency is so defunct, I told my husband it would be really hard for me to tell what was just the basic non-response to, be, or just being blacklisted, because it was a similar thing to me, because... Um, we had gotten so used to so little coming out of the DNR agency, but uh, blacklisting—they their excuse for blacklisting at least um, a few of us was they said we did repetitive and abusive requests from the agency, which uh, which was a falsehood.
1: Well, well, I imagine repetitive requests probably had some truth in it. I mean, you're you're, you're constantly trying to get information, aren't you?
13: Well, we're constantly seeking protection
1: from the uh, from the
13: Department of Natural Resources that they would have a warden in our community. We've been self policing our community since two thousand seven. And that can be found in record. When you go and into and record, you're talking
1: about for discharge and and that's for sort of-
13: discharge for spills, for violations. I mean we're basically on our own and we haven't had a warden in our um, in Kewanee County in over three years, even though we've requested it and gone to meetings and requested it in Madison. So we are self-policing. For having 16 CAFOs, you think there would be some oversight? It's non-existent.
1: We're, we're kind of out of time here, um, but you know, the more stories we hear, the, uh, the more outraged all of us become. And that's why we're here today at the Factory Farm Summit in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Um, I want to thank you both, uh, Mary Doherty and uh, Nancy. Tasha, I'm sorry you're blacklisted. Uh, I hope your phone service gets restored well, soon. Uh, well,
13: we've been removed from the blacklist. We've been you told, have been, uh, yes. But well, it, <laughs> it, it
1: What about <laughs> you, Mary? You gonna get on one soon? I so want to be on the blacklist. He's <laughs> <laughs> <be> so fun. <laughs>
5: it means you're doing I your job. I want to be on the blacklist too <laughs> because you're irritating the DNR. They need to be held accountable. Maybe for the, the FCC
1: will put me on the blacklist. You we, know? Could, we know? could have a blacklist club. I think so. We yeah. should all get you know right. And <laughs> and then people who are not a the black list cannot come into the meetings. Yeah, all right?
5: we can have a secret handshake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you both uh, for uh, stopping by, and uh, thank you. And good luck to all of you. Uh, we're just discovering more and more. Different states have uh, a lot of very, very similar problems, and it all leads to polluting our water. Um, and it was just uh, something that Mike Wiggins Jr. last night. Who's standing, who's right, standing over there. right over there? How you doing, Mike? You can come by and say hi in a second if you want. Uh, oh, and Chris Peterson is here. We're going to have him uh, right after we take this short break. I, Chris, I want you to come by and, and, and say hello. Um, and uh, uh, they're, all, they're all ducking out of the meeting so they can be on radio. Uh, so that's cool. I, I, I like that. It's uh, so the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM, Q4.org. We'll be back with a second hour. Captain's Log,
12: Stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form, Mister Wolf. Status report. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mister Wolf. Mister Data, be more specific. Asparagus officinalis, or killer asparagus, was the subject of a very popular 21st-century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work. Of course. Attack of the Killer Asparagus is required reading at Starfleet Academy. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Gwynok of Ninglador. Captain, shields are failing. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. Captain, it seems to be available online at AroundTheBlockPress.com. AroundTheBlockPress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm, it appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick gardener, taking all our self delusions, mishaps, and confusions and playing them for big laughs. That's not very helpful, Mr. Data. No, it is, however, highly accurate.
4: Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program. Broadcasting live every Sunday from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, on Q4 Radio, and at MikeNovak.net. Here he is again,
0: Mike Novak.
1: And we're back live at the Factory Farm Summit in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Peggy Malecki sitting on my right, and we're, we're, we're trading phones so that we can do photos. You know, if next time, Peggy, uh, we have to bring our own photographer, I think. You've got that one. There okay, we go.
6: I have this one. So we can't that's, figure that's out I tra- who has which mic. Either. Okay.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a little... <laughs> It's a little nutty here, but uh, uh, we're happy to be uh, talking to the the wonderful people and from many different parts of the country here, all with the same issue, which is factory farms and the damage uh, they are causing uh, to our environment. Not only that, but the inhumanity of the treatment of the animals in factory farms, uh, and that's why it's a good idea for you as consumers to pay attention. That's, that's that's sort. Of, there's there's a couple of upshots from this. One, you know, is pay attention to the food you're eating. Another is get involved yes. if you care about yes. your your land, your water, your air. Because it's not it's not just the water, although water is a huge part of it. Uh, it's also the land. Uh, the biology gets altered uh, because of, of what's in the waste products produced by factory farms. But also the air, because a lot of people can't breathe. When right. they get and, and that's uh, and, and sitting on my left uh, is um, Michelle Merkel, who is a co-director of food and water justice, uh, the legal arm of food and water watch. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Yeah,
14: Thanks so much for having and me. And we're
1: sneaking in because you've got to go and speak in a few minutes. So um, but I know food and water Watch is is, is deeply involved in, in this issue. What uh, give me a little preview what you're going to talk about inside.
14: Inside. Well, I'm going to talk about something, uh, a recent trend. We know that EPA and the states have not been doing their job in regulating factory farms, period. They have not um, protected communities from air and water impacts, as you've talked about. And now there's even a more disturbing trend, which is away from regulation altogether and moving to the marketplace. So there, I'm going to talk about something called water pollution trading, where now CAFOs can generate uh, credits for sale by voluntarily reducing pollution in a way that's never verified, and then sell those credits to other polluters, like power plants, like wastewater treatment plants, to increase their pollution. And these deals are cut outside of the public arena by private brokers who skim off the middle. It's a very scary trend that needs to be stopped.
1: You mentioned uh, the EPA, and there, uh, of course, is the National Environmental Protection Agency, and then there are often state agencies that are right. working and this and these agencies are not all equal uh i know that um illinois's uh I, the iepa in illinois has a track record uh that is a uh, spotty and let me put it that way i'm gonna i'm gonna be as kind as i possibly can right, right. to the iepa spotty is uh and so how do you know, as, as a national organization, when, when you got to go to the national EPA and when you have to fight the local EPAs?
14: You have to be in all three places. You have to be, you have to be at the local level, you have to be at the state level, and you have to be the federal level. Um, EPA is supposed to set the, the floor, not the ceilings for states, meaning they're supposed to have a minimum set of standards that states have to follow and laws that they have to enforce, and then the states are on the front line implementing our Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, um, and EPA is supposed to provide oversight, but the reality is the floor is weak. You know, EPA regulations are weak for KFOs. Um, they're not providing the oversight to the states, making sure that they're doing their job. And therefore, as we um, heard from Nancy, really, um, the, the the responsibility is falling on our citizens to protect themselves and enforce these st- statutes when they're able to.
1: And and that's difficult because a lot of these people and and. There are people in this room, people I've talked to already, who are learning this the hard way. It's the school of hard knocks. It's yeah. like you get you get beat up so many times by the state agencies and by the the industry that you take matters into your own hands and you, you organize. And that's uh, obviously how things have always gotten done in America. People organize. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, but that's really a hard way to go because now each generation has to learn this. It's like you're not getting help from the government or you get very little help. And right. it's right. So how, to, how, how do you teach people how to do that?
14: Well, you're going to talk to one of the best organizers in the country, Maria Payans, in a minute, but I'm glad you talked about organizing because it is the only thing that's ever changed anything, civic engagement. And so now there's a movement afoot in the communities with SRAP's help to, um, when they can, pass local ordinances to protect themselves. Um, at the end of the day, it's your elected officials making decisions, right? So you need to... Make them make decisions that reflect your value, values or unelect them. And when you, you win at the local level, like Mary talked about with an ordinance, you're not done there because the state can try to take local control away. So you need to be at the state level, legislature plugging in those local voices, making sure that you've got champions there to um, protect the wins that you have at the local level. And likewise, you need to be meeting with your congressional representatives as well. So we really need to be in all three places and it's people power that will ultimately trump the that's all right. Corporate power. And
1: again, I'm I'm not saying people shouldn't do that. Mhm. They have lives to lead. You know, they're, they're they 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 have families to raise, they have their own businesses uh, that they have to work at. And now you got to add on top of that, oh go visit your state representative and and write a few letters to mm-hmm. the editor mm-hmm. and uh, Right. That sort of thing, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tough road.
14: It's a heavy lift, and there are groups like Food and Water Watch and SROP that are there to provide as much support as we can, but at the end of the day, people have to save themselves, that's, uh, and it's it's unfair. I mean, it's outrageous that in Kewanee County their water's been poisoned for years, and just now EPA's stepping up to provide alternative source of water, and that's just dealing with the symptom. That's not dealing with the problem of how you're going to clean up the mess in the first place and prevent these from, from dairies to, from continuing to apl-
1: Pollute. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, if folks want to get involved with the Food and Water Watch, uh, where do they go?
14: Um, www.foodandwaterwatch.org.
1: And but in this particular issue, obviously they can just click on there and find. Oh, uh, Google factory,
14: and uh, you know, search for factory farm. Yeah, <laughs> right? search for factory farm,
1: <laughs> and um, you'll find
14: us. Yeah, we love um, p- folks' support, and we're happy also to lend support where we can to those on the ground who are fighting the good fight.
1: Well, I know you got to get in the room, so I'm going to let you go. Uh, that's Michelle M- Merkel. Uh, Did I wait? Did I say that right? Yeah, Michelle Merkel from uh, uh, Food and Water Watch. She's co-director of Food and Water Justice, which is a legal arm. Obviously, you're a lawyer. I am. Uh, (laughs) It's good. It's good to have lawyers on this side of the argument, too, because the corporate lawyers are always there, aren't they? That's
14: right. That's right. We need more of us for sure. But like I said, like I tried to allude to before, the legal... Uh, work is a tactic in a much broader campaign, and really, at the end of the day, organizing is what we need. I, you know, the you talked about the industry having billions of dollars, but. Everyone, no matter how much money you have, has the right to vote and should exercise that right so that you're electing people that share and reflect your values.
1: All right. Uh, thank you, Michelle, and have a have a good talk in there. Thank you. Uh, and now we go to Peggy's right. We've got we're, we're always surrounded uh, by these people, <laughs> and that's and that's a good thing. I'm I'm, I'm speaking. Uh, Maria, how do you p- pronounce your last name? Payan. Payan. All right. And uh, is the executive director and founding member of Peach Bottom Concerned Citizens Group. Out of Delaware. All right. First thing is when you think about factory farms, I bet very few people are thinking Delaware.
15: Well, it's interesting. Peach Bottom Concerned Citizens Group actually started in Pennsylvania. I relocated from our community fight there. Um, I relocated to Selbyville, Delaware last year because I fled my home. (laughs)
1: Uh, out of necessity
15: out of necessity my home is still there i still pay about mm, a little over seven hundred dollars a month property taxes on a house that i cannot sell and um our family's health was affected to the point that um they had tested my son for cancer not this past spring the spring before and we had had all kinds of problems and health issues and it got to the point where we said that's enough, we're done, we're gone. So that's, and, that's what happens.
6: And how did you realize it was the factory farms causing the problems?
15: Oh, we've had problems. So With no, the health issues? Oh, with the health issues? Well, I mean, it's very apparent. Um, I'll give you an example. An example, um, they had a uh, we lived across from 100,000 broilers, poultry, mm-hmm. and they also had cattle feedlot with liquid manure and the winter storage ponds that you could fit my house in one of the winter storage ponds. Um, they had a mass mortality. and My child was coming out of the bathtub with uh, palm-sized blisters all over his body, and I was mm-hmm. rushing him to the hospital. So this is the kind of thing that you deal with um, Occasionally, you have and, that and, kind of And what of was the ex- what was the
1: exposure? How how is the exposure happening?
15: Well, the exposure because the stormwater, you know, when you're in a rural area, you're on a private well. Right. So the stormwater from the facility, which was stone's throw away across the street, was going underneath the road and settling in the backyard next to the well. Oh dear. Yes. So but just on a And you a were daily just across basis. the street from this. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah.
1: And a lot of people are. I mean, that's right. that, but those are the first ones to right. to to get on board, but even if you're a mile away, 2 miles away, 10 miles away, you're affected by this.
15: Oh yes. I mean, it, 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 on a daily basis, okay? Because of the dust from blowing, you know, off of yeah. the poultry, you would have to put your windshield wipers on in the car to get out of the driveway in the morning. I Yikes. mean, that's not normal. And you think, oh, my no. god, that's yeah. all going into my lungs.
1: Okay. Okay. I have to bring but, up one point. And, and somebody who's uh, sitting here next to me who just came in is Chris Peterson. Um, you might remember Chris. Uh, we interviewed Chris uh, a couple of months ago when the film At the Fork came to Chicago. And Chris is a family farmer uh, from Iowa and uh chris it's good to see you
10: yeah absolutely glad to be here at the summit
1: um I'll, I'll ask you about that in a second but i've got both you and maria here what i hear all the time what you read anyway and this, the standard line from industry and and the farmers who who start to put these kfos on their property it's always oh you know those folks who are complaining they li- they should know that they live in the country you got to, you got to expect to, to some sort of smell in the country. My response is always, wait a second. If they live in the country and they've experienced these smells for years, probably decades, they know when it's gotten really bad and out of control. So how can you possibly use that argument? Does that make any sense?
15: Well, I'm glad that you asked that because what we're seeing in Delmarva right now is a total restructuring of this Industry, okay? They have had broilers there for decades. The industry has had a presence. But it was one or two poultry houses contracted Mm -hmm. with a farmer. Now, they are using foreign investment programs. And we have land wars going on, Mm -hmm. okay, where people are buying brokers, um, are dividing up huge farms into what they were calling no-land farms. In other words, the one or two houses now are coming in uh, a lot of foreign interest where they're putting 12 houses, 600-foot houses, from end to end on the parcel. And then they subdivide another parcel right next to it. Mm -hmm. And that's 12 houses on that one.
1: And when you say houses, you're talking...
15: I'm talking poultry confinement building, 600-foot houses. Right. So this is not... (laughs) You're talking about 12 houses, 40,000 birds apiece... With five turnovers a year on just one little parcel.
1: When, when you say five turnovers.
15: Okay. So um, where they, the flock rotates. In other words, the, the flock grows within like okay. 42 Okay, Yeah, days. I'm, just,
1: I'm right. just clarifying this so yes. that folks listening know what we're talking about So
15: you're here. literally talking, you know, a million and a half birds on one small parcel. Mm-hmm. And what this is doing For example, Accomack County, Virginia. And this
1: is happening in Delaware?
15: Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. Chesapeake Bay, right? Oh, great. Right?
1: What could go wrong with polluting Chesapeake Bay? Here's what's
15: going on. We have brokers sending out letters to farm owners saying your farm would be a good candidate to put poultry houses on. And we are bringing above value for this land in this program, we had a sixty thousand acre—I mean, a sixty thousand dollar parcel—sell for four hundred thousand dollars in a bidding war. It's driving the land prices up, uh-huh. and you know what's going to happen to the farmers for decades that have, you know, uh, contracted with one or two houses—they're going to get dropped because they're economically not feasible anymore.
10: Hmm. All right, Chris. Yep. And I've said it for years. I've expressed it. To Secretary Vilsack, I've actually expressed it to President Obama. We have two different types of agriculture here. We're at a crossroads. We have a choice. We either go down the industrial corporate model or we go back and stay with, there's not very many of us, many of us left, stay with a traditional independent family farm model who has fed this country since 1776. That's where we need to go.
6: Now, Michelle, you mentioned, I'm sorry, Maria, you mentioned briefly um, international interests. Somebody last night was talking about a lot of land being purchased from um, Chinese corporations.
15: Um, I am seeing Chinese. I am seeing Pakistani. I am seeing um, uh, Vietnamese. And with all this, these programs, um, because now we have, Land managers, mm-hmm. in some cases, farm managers, which they will get someone to run the operation. Literally, I have people emailing me and telling me that, you know, as a plumber, they were called out to a house to put a septic system in. They have converted a pump house where the tenant land manager is living. So we're seeing human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing these operations Going into hands of people who do not know the um, how to manage a farm, especially a farm of this size.
6: Mm.
15: Which is I mean managing I can, from a distance oh, I they can, haven't even been I there. can tell you stories where the farm uh, manager or the person, you know, that has bought this investment has gone home to Staten Island to visit relatives for the weekend and left the farm unattended and there was mortality all over the place. I mean, this is dangerous.
1: It is. Yeah, it's 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 dangerous. It's, uh, as we said before, inhumane. Uh, You know, as you um, just said, um, civil rights are being violated. Uh, And how does an individual state like Delaware or even the the federal government keep up with this? It's it's got to be individuals like you who are blowing the whistle. I would imagine
15: that that's what it is. You know, it's the communities on the front line, and they see that this model's you know has something has gone terribly wrong. And like one of the cases now, one of the folks that's um, actually down here at the conference from Montgomery County, Maryland, that farm they have two other farmers that want to buy that farm, um, but it, because it's a brokerage deal, they're getting more money by selling it into these programs so this is i mean this is serious it's serious
1: well yeah you know what what we peggy mentioned the missouri um and apparently the state laws that no more than one percent of the lands can be purchased by foreign individuals or foreign uh, corporations whatever uh and they've reach half of that and it's hundreds of thousands of acres already
15: right and we have to understand these are legal you know programs no one is doing anything wrong and no one you know it's not any kind of um well
1: except that's not in terms of buying them and purchasing them but when you're putting up when you when you're creating pollution and 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 uh making uh creating dangerous situations for the citizens yeah then they're violating laws
15: well what right that happens yes uh, normally, you know, in, but uh, what I'm saying is these are programs that have been um, basically misused in a way that is encouraging some of this. So, it, 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 you know, um, no one has anything against immigration and legal immigration. My husband is from Iran. You know, my son is half Iranian. This is it's. This we need I to understand. I take it you won't be
1: voting for Donald Trump. Uh, hey. <laughs> 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 just just a hunch. Just a hunch.
6: What <laughs> made you believe that? I, <laughs> I, I don't know. It just kind of popped into my head.
1: Oh, sorry
10: about that. Well, what, what we have going on in this country <laughs> over the last ten, fifteen, twenty years, we have a bunch of non-farmers who want to be farmers, mm-hmm. and they're investors. They're big corporations. They're foreign entities. As an example, in the state of Iowa, Smithfield, they now own 25% of the hogs. Smithfield is now owned by the Chinese government. The Chinese government. And then we have JBS, which brought out the, the pig wing of cargo. So approximately we have 50% of the total pigs in Iowa owned by a foreign entity, and mm-hmm. in my opinion— The farmers are being turned into serfs. Where are we going with this? Right.
1: Unfortunately, we could do this for hours, (laughs) Uh, and and unfortunately, (laughs) there are too many stories. That's not a good thing. That's 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 a bad thing. But that's why we're here today uh, to call. Why you guys are here, and you're going to go out and spread the word. I'm trying to do in my small way uh, on this uh, live radio show. Uh, and then on podcast this will be on podcast so if you're listening to this now and you want your friends to hear this and these uh, amazing stories from these amazing people who are stepping up and being true americans uh, then uh, i hope you uh, pass uh, along the information about the mike novak show you can go to mikenovak.net, m i k e n o w a k dot knet all right uh, i've got to let you go chris peterson thank you so much for stopping by um, always a pleasure. Uh, and Maria Payan, thank you so much uh, for your story as well. And and it's good to understand that it's not just a Midwest issue. No. Um, no. And that's what you're showing us.
10: Right. It's global. This is global. Good
1: point, too. I mean, we focus on America, but.
10: Uh, this is a national food security issue. Who's yes. going to feed us? Who's going to raise our food going forward? Exactly. All
1: right. And, and our next uh, speaker, uh, Dr. John Eichert, is is uh, standing by, too, and nodding, and we, we'll get to him in a second. You're listening to The Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio. That's at q4.org, uh, 1680 AM.
6: Did you know that Genesis is the Midwest's largest source of airbrush supplies? Yes,
1: I did, actually. Okay.
6: Well, good, but you can still find out even more at ChicagoAirbrushSupply.com or Artsupply.com. Stop into their showroom at 2525 North Elston and say that you heard about them on Q4 Radio or the Mike Novak Show and get an extra 10% off their already discounted prices. Genesis, Chicago's only privately owned art supplier, serving all of Chicago's artistic framing and
11: drafting needs since 1946. This is Suzanne Malik mckenna for Chicago Wilderness. When you think of our region, wilderness may not be the first thing that comes to mind. Did you know this area is home to more than half a million acres of protected nature with thousands of plants and animal species? Our local native wildlife need your help. Now is the time. 12 Animals in 12 Weeks is a campaign to get support for these critical species in their habitats. Sponsor one today. Meet the species at chicagowilderness.org. Splash species. Yeah. Splash.
1: Splash. I
11: kind of like that. <laughs> ah. Did you know Chicagoans
6: are getting healthier all the time? Hi, I'm Peggy, and I know this is true because for six years I've been publishing Natural Awakening, Chicago's greenest and healthiest magazine. And if you want your message to reach this growing market, you do need to get your business in front of our readers. Why? Because our advertisers tell us that our targeted readers are committed to improving their health and ready to take action. That's more than 80,000 people in Chicagoland who will respond to your message. They're looking for holistic wellness practitioners, integrative doctors and dentists, nutritionists, health coaches, yoga instructors, even home improvement and landscape experts. Natural Awakenings is a free monthly magazine available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. Call me today to expand your market and grow your business. 847-858-3697. That's 847-858-3697. Natural Awakenings, feel good, live simply, laugh more.
12: Want to make a positive move in the housing market? Replace your siding and windows. You'll improve your home's look and energy efficiency too. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for your remodeling and energy needs. Siding, windows, solar and wind power and more. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of Nary. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com.
10: How's
4: that brick lane coming? How's your engine running? Is that bridge getting built? Are your hands getting filled? Won't you tell me?
1: back to the mike novak show and and you know that's a perfect song appropriate song uh we can start moving forward because that's what these folks are doing and i guess it looks like maybe the room is taking a break over there so we might see some more people out here we'll all be moving forward yes we (laughs) will be moving out (laughs) of the way um and uh we are at the factory farm summit in green bay wisconsin mike novak and peggy malecki uh, and it's, uh, I don't know about you, but it's just, uh, I'm, I'm having my mind blown at the moment. How about you?
6: Definitely. Yeah. And I'm just, there's so much to read and so much to learn and keep up with. Okay.
1: And the man uh, sitting on our left, I actually sat next to him at dinner right. last night. Yeah, Dr. John Eichert, who is the Professor Emeritus of Ag Economics at the University of Missouri.
16: Correct. I retired from there about 16 years ago. so I'm uh, Which is a wi-
1: uh, uh, time. But, you know, okay, uh, well, first thing, first things first. You mentioned that there are not many, or are there more Eicherts now? Or th-
16: there's there's more icards now when i first started looking through the phone books when i was traveling around the country it was difficult to find a city you know to have an icard maybe one or two but now you see more so i guess they're spreading
1: <laughs> and, and what uh nationality is that
16: i think it comes from germany it's probably had a spelling yeah. change several times <laughs> yeah my, <laughs> my ancestors came out of the hills of north carolina hillbillies so to speak moved oh, really? moved over into southern missouri so that most of my ancestors couldn't read and write, so I'm sure somebody else just wrote the name down as the way that they pronounced it.
1: Oh, my goodness. And then <laughs> here you are, a, a professor at the University of Missouri. Now, Correct. I was looking at your biography. For the longest time, you, okay, to put it indelicately, right. you were on the other side. Right. You were uh, teaching and promoting what we call conventional agriculture. Right.
16: I call it industrial agriculture. Industrial
1: now. agriculture. Uh, you must have had a, an epiphany along the way. What was but, it?
16: Well, let me say to begin with that uh, the reason I was promoting sort of industrial agriculture is for the sake of economic efficiency, and, and that system of agriculture is tremendously economically efficient. The idea was, and I think it was well intended, that we were going to make farms more efficient, we would bring down the cost of production, we would make good food affordable for everyone, and in the process we would create profitable opportunities for farmers and build vital rural communities. That that was the whole vision when we began that process of moving away from family farms to industrial agriculture. But I woke up during the 1980s and said, look, something's not right here. That was the farm and that financial And that was at crisis. the point
1: where, where uh, Secretary Earl Butts was saying,
16: get big or get out. Right. And he had been promoting that back in the 60s and 70s. And farmers had followed his advice. And we had expanded production dramatically during the 1970s, which was a highly profitable time. We were going to feed the world then, like we're trying to feed the world now. And the export markets were expanding, and agriculture was very profitable. So farmers borrowed a lot of money to expand the size of their operations, either to buy equipment or to buy more land. And then we got into the 1980s. The export markets dried up. Commodity prices dropped like a rock, and farmers were caught with huge debts at record high interest rates. You Remember the inflation years of 70s and 80s? And they were losing their farms. Foreclosures and bankruptcies were regular fare on the network news every night. So I looked around and said, look, I didn't get into this because I could see that was a direct consequence of the kind of agriculture we'd been promoting. You know, the farmers got big, expanded, and they were losing their farms. So I didn't go to school for 16 years to go out here and drive farmers out of business. And then I could see what it was happening to the rural communities that depended upon those family farms, you know wasn't just the economic uh, main street that was drying up in terms of businesses because there weren't families there, but there weren't families to go to church and the kids to go to school and to provide health care. These rural communities were withering and dying. So I've become concerned about the environmental or ecological issues of agriculture only after I could see the economic failure and the social failure. And I said, that kind of agriculture, I don't want to, I can't be a part of that anymore. And then that's when the sustainable agriculture was kind of coming on, on online, you know, people began to talk about it. An agriculture that balances the need for farmers to make a living with taking care of the land, the ecological part, and being good members of strong, viable, rural communities. That made sense to me. And so I've continued to work on it ever since, trying to help people like people at this conference. You know, we're all trying to understand how to create a new and better food system.
1: That's uh, Dr. John Eichert uh and it makes me think when i when I think of land grant colleges and I, right. and, I, and I think of universities I would think that you 're out of step with a lot of the people right. who teach in those places
16: uh, that's right and uh, you know i i don't fall in a good way of course but, yeah i don't <laughs> i don't fall um, you know my former colleagues or anybody in the kind of the industrial agricultural establishment as I call it for. Making the same mistakes I did because we didn't know any better. We we didn't anticipate the consequences that came out of that. But what I fault people for is is the failure to to realize and to admit when the evidence is strong there right before us that that this kind of agriculture that we created basically failed. It it even failed in its in its most fundamental. Mission, As I said, we were going to provide good food for everyone. We we have a higher percentage of food insecure, hungry people in this country today than we had back in the 1960s before this last surge started. About 15% of the people in this country are classified as being food insecure, meaning they don't know that they're going to be able to get enough food to get through the month. More than 20% of our children live in food insecure homes. Back in the 60s. When CBS did the special on hunger in America, the estimate was about 5%. Wow. We didn't feed the hunger. We're leaving it to the market. Most people are hungry because they're poor. And a market economy is never going to feed people that don't have the money to compete with other uses like fuel and export and waste. So we didn't feed the hungry people. In addition to that, the people, particularly the low-income people, that can afford to get enough calories, the food's making them sick. We've got an epidemic of obesity and heart disease and diabetes and and, uh, you know, high blood pressure and f- number of cancers that are linked to this agricultural system. You know, who I fault within the universities and the government establishment is the evidence is clear. It's there. We were well intended. We started off to do something good. It didn't work. We need to change. When you say you started off to do something good, it was
1: what trying to quantify it and and use scientific science to no, increase to i increase mean we
16: started off thinking that we were really going to provide good food for everybody and now it's obvious that that didn't happen mm-hmm. you know the statistics are there
1: so what's what direction do we need to go in now
16: well i think we have to rethink the whole the, rethink the whole system and you asked about my my colleagues whenever I changed and began to question the system my whole status within the academic community changed overnight I was head of the extension agricultural economics department at the university of georgia at that time during the 80s when and our people in our department had to go out and and try to help these farmers you know figure out some way financially to save the farms they would lay out their records and at least talk them out of getting out of farming if they still had some equity or if if everything else failed talk them out of killing themselves and saying you can save something in here so Whenever I had to change, but but I was you know I was on a trajectory as a department head to become a dean or a egg program leader or mm-hmm. director of extension or something. That whole that whole career direction changed when you begin questioning that system. Mm. You know you're an outcast. <laughs> you're uh, not so, on that's what I was assuming,
1: and that's kind yeah. of where I was going with my question originally. So, so but, yeah. uh, you,
16: but you talk you you raise the bigger question. You know, let's say. You change your mind with where we're going. This is where sustainable agriculture is. And what a lot of people don't realize is it's since that time, this whole movement of creating a different kind of agriculture, an agriculture that balances the need to make a living with taking care of the land, being good communities, that's that's continued to grow. There's at least 12 conferences across this country today that will draw over 1,200 people. There's uh, upper Midwest organic growers. Last few years, 3,500 people will come in here. And these are farmers that have this new vision and organic farming You're talking about Moses Moses and those conferences Organic, Yeah, Moses conference Organic farming has gotten most of the attention and organic food sales were growing at a rate of 20% per year during the 90's and up until 2008 which means it's doubling every 3 or 4 years still growing at more than 10% The local food movement is the fastest thing that's going on today Most exciting thing farmers markets have quadrupled in in 20 years CSAs have gone from nothing to over 12,000 CSAs more than 50,000 farmers farmers out here selling direct to consumers, these are USDA figures that are out here. There is this whole movement that's moving to a different kind of agriculture. You know, we're here fighting the industrial agricultural establishment, and that's what we need to do. But at the same time, we've got to create a vision of the alternative of agriculture that's better, that will produce good food for people and produce food for all of us. Sustainable agriculture is about meeting the food needs of all of the present generation and doing it without diminishing opportunities for the future. We're taking on that challenge, and it's the farmers out here, like a lot of people you see here, that are meeting that challenge, and they're figuring out ways that they can go on grass-based dairies, hormone, antibiotic-free, organic, permaculture, uh, biodynamic farming, uh, ecological farming, practical farmers. You're speaking heresy here. Farmers. You know that it's just total I heresy. Mean, I don't. I don't, I, don't I don't. How do you? It's a tremendous social and environmental, you know, public movement that's going on all across the country that's emerging out here. And I have a a real rare opportunity in my old age to be able to go out here and interact with these farmers and interact with people like this conference. I tell people if I didn't have the opportunity to go out here and interact with people that are actually doing these things, you know, I'm from Missouri, you have to show me. But when (laughs) I see it, when I see it, if I didn't have the opportunity to see it, then I'd just stay home and shut up. Uh, I actually got a tweet here from a guy who follows
1: the show, Casey Tomato. So, okay. all right, Missouri. He says, ask Dr. Eichert about Missouri's right-to-farm law, right. quote, uh, passed,
16: which sounds good but isn't. Right. I actually went down and, and helped uh, the folks that were trying to defeat that right-to-farm law. And actually, it's every state has a right-to-farm law, but what Missouri was doing was making it a right-to-farm amendment, which would make it much easier to do away with and the basic intent of all these right-to-farm laws that they're trying to strengthen all across the country today is to go beyond the original intent of saying, okay, if you move in next to a farmer, the ordinary sounds and smells and odors, whatever, you can't sue them for the ordinary things. But what they're trying to do now is they're trying to identify accepted farming practices to include the industrial agriculture. Specifically, the uh, the CAFOs and the factory farms would be considered acceptable farming practices. And the way the laws are written they would define the acceptable farming practices would be defined by the people that are in the industrial agricultural establishment. In other words, GMOs or, or any kind of pesticides that they, want, they considered to be uh, acceptable, normal farming practices would be protected by the Missouri Constitution, so you, you couldn't challenge those. So what they're trying to do all across the country, they're trying to, to build a firewall, because as you mentioned earlier, there's growing public opposition to this kind of agriculture, and what they're trying to do is, is counter that opposition first with a massive public relations mm-hmm. campaign that I'll talk more about this, after, or, yeah, this afternoon. Yeah, because you're doing the, the, the final yeah, keynote the final thing. But the other thing is, that, is a whole legislative initiative all across the country, you know, like the veggie laws that started off and the egg-gag laws and now the yeah. right-to-farm laws. They're trying to remove the ability of the American people to regulate industrial agriculture. That's the intent of this whole thing. Oh. All
1: right. I have to ask the big a big question since we, we've gotten a little bit off subject, but we've been talking for an hour and a half about factory farms. But you're talking more about feeding the planet and, and feeding right. our country. And that's an argument that always comes up uh and right. and has now for a couple of decades, which is the conventional uh practitioners of farming say this is the only way we can feed the world and the organic people say no it's not we can do it what's what's the truth of that
16: Well, the people that say that that this is the only way you can do it, it's just outright conflict. It's, it's in fact, a a big lie, if you wanted to name it, what it really is. You go into the international community, and I had the opportunity in 2014 to write the North American paper for the International Year of the Family Farm for Food and Agriculture Organization of the U.N. I had an opportunity to interact and had a reason to do research on this. And in reality, the, the several studies have indicated that anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of the people in the world today are not fed by the large farms operations. They're fed by what we would consider small subsistence farms. And also the research... Really? Let's let's stop there for a second. 80 to 90 percent of... 70 to 80 percent. 70 to 80 percent of the the people in the world? Are fed by subsistence farm. What what we're doing with the industrial agriculture, we really are not producing food for people in general. We're producing feed for livestock. And once you put it through the livestock, you've lost about 90 percent of the calories that was in the in the feed to begin with is, is a general rule, so you're getting far less feed out of that and we're producing fuel for biofuels and things of this and Forty percent of the U.S. corn crop in recent years has been going to fuel. And we're finding to out to that people. ethanol is not the right. way to go with that either. Right. And what we're producing here and exporting in terms of meat, you know, the, the chickens and hogs and various other things and milk and things here. What, what we're exporting to other countries, not going to the hungry people in other countries, just going to the increasing affluent classes that are emerging in China and the Pacific Rim and India and places like this, where people want more meat. So the people, you know, out here and by and large, the general population globally, like say 70, 80 percent, the average, come are are fed by subsistence farms and trade within their own local on local communities, not by the industrial agriculture. And the last four or five. Uh, major global food reports that have come out, many of these include prominent U.S. scientists on these committees, have have indicated that these alternative systems of production, such as agroecology and permaculture and nature farming in the the Pacific Rim, that this has the potential of increasing the production on those uh, smaller farms. Uh, doubling, tripling, some places in the African study even quadrupling production without the industrial model, simply an agroecology model, where uh, we call it a sustainable agriculture model, where you give people basic information about soil biology and crop rotations and integrated crop and livestock system, not changing your culture, not changing your way of life, not destroying your communities, basically local food system. So if you start with a base of 70% of the people that are fed by Subsistence farms now. If you double that, that would be 140 percent of the population. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could abandon industrial agriculture. That's some good math totally. yeah, yeah, I <laughs> like that math.
1: But 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 you know, he said something just now. He he mentioned biology. And and what's my line on this show?
6: It's the biology, stupid.
1: Right. Yeah. it is. And and uh, what we and then that's what we're teaching people yeah, is yeah. that we have to get away from strict NPK and. Right. All this stuff that we we thought we had it all licked and we knew exactly the science behind it, but there is biology involved and we're finding it, right. how important that is. And
16: that's the the fundamental problem that we're dealing with now that I can see. It's been said several times that the problem is inherent within the system. The industrial system is basically a mechanistic system that's based on a mechanistic view of the world. It goes back to Descartes and Newton and the people said the Those world horrible works like people a yes <laughs> yeah, that you can take it apart and tinker with it and fix it and do whatever you want yeah. to it so it's a mechanistic approach specialized standardized consolidate that's the industrial model the the problem is is that we're using an industrial model within a living system. The context within which agriculture must function is a biological context. Yeah. It's the biology and the soils and the plants and the animals and it's a social context of the people, the thinking, caring, feeling people. And it's, it's so th- that, that paradigm or that model of agriculture is in conflict with the nature, the biological nature, and with the social nature in which it functions and there's no way to fix this kind of agriculture without changing the system. We have to fundamentally change the way we think about agriculture.
6: So a a question for you, because it also affects the medical community, it affects um, food and nutrition communities. The common knowledge, as you said, was that The factory farming this high intensive farming was going to feed the world and that's still in people's heads that's in their world view how do you change that in individual farmers and people who believe what they were told 10 years ago
16: right i think it's back to the old idea you confront power with truth i think we keep saying and keep telling the truth and these are the i'm going to point out this afternoon the scientific evidence in a recent report they called it overwhelming The scientific evidence around the world and in this country is overwhelming in terms of indicting industrial agriculture for environmental issues as air air pollution, water pollution, the public health issues, contaminating our food supply with antibiotic resistant bacteria in addition to E. coli and listeria and a whole range of other things. All of this, all of this is documented. And and so I think what we have to have is the time to kind of stop and thinking. We've got to find ways to get people's attention so we can open up the conversation, and and bring them the facts of the situation. It, it's being intentionally distorted and and blocked out to the extent that the industrial agricultural establishment can do so today by this giant propaganda campaign this legislative campaign that never happens in this country what are you talking about
1: <laughs> oh, man but you see and, and what you're saying it's 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 all about the marketing it's you know and it, you have to control the message you have to get the message out yeah and,
16: and the message is there probably in the early Early days of the controversy, there was reason to be, you know, not to know which side of this issue you're going to come down on. And, and that's when most of the scientific information that was available was coming out of the agricultural colleges, which we discussed before. Yeah. But now the only scientific information basically that provides any defense for industrial agriculture is the information that's coming out of the agricultural colleges and coming from people that have obvious conflict of interest. But now we have all of the other people like the, the medical schools and the public health institutes and things, people of this nature that are beginning to do the research, and you have people all around the country that are doing research that's bringing a, a totally different message as far as, uh, you know, what the results are and, and what the implications are of industrial agriculture.
1: Last question, Dr. Eichert. Uh have we caught this uh, soon enough to i mean we there's when you when you talk to the people in this room they're concerned with immediate pollution and and right. disease threats um just right. dis, spoiling our water are we going to make the change fast enough we're t- trying to turn around the titanic no. aren't we right.
16: Well, we're going to make a change, whether it's fast enough or not, but I think part of what a message I want to get across here to people today that we need to make every one of these skirmishes kind of a battle in the bigger war to change public opinion. Public opinion is moving in our direction. People are already inclined to to be concerned about the food system, and they're raising these questions. So at the same time that we continue to fight the brush fires, so to speak, so that we're helping these people that are on the ground and confronted with issues right now, issues that they need to resolve right now, that we look at those every one of those skirmishes as an opportunity to raise public awareness to the level where we begin to you know, have more and more impact on public opinion. Now, public opinion, as I say, this isn't a mechanistic process like we're tinkering through the machine and all of a sudden we have to go through each cog. We're dealing with a biological process here but also the mental process by which people change their minds. And we see the change in those kinds of areas, change in public perception, public opinion. You can have a you can have a build up to a point where you reach a tipping point and then the change is explosive. There's no way of anticipating how quickly the this tipping change point, could come. Uh, that we that reach the tipping popular. point, yeah. and the change comes, and it's, it comes immediately, and we wake up 10 years later, and it's a totally different world. Mm. And that's what uh, we're all hoping will happen.
1: Right. Uh, Dr. Eichert, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. John Eichert, the uh, Professor Emeritus of Ag Economics at the University of Missouri. I would love to chat with you again. You're, well, thank you're you. brilliant.
16: Thank you for giving me the opportunity to visit with your listeners today. So thank uh, you very much.
1: And good luck on the uh, talk this afternoon. Thank you. All right. It's the Mike Novak Show. I'm going to switch mics here, change the – there we go. The Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM q Four. dot org. uh let's bring up uh rick de and uh mr de are you there One hey
0: good morning mike again
1: all right there we are uh you might get a little echo i'm apologize for that if if that happens no rick. it's fine oh good and you sound great so it's uh good to have you on board uh this is just a, we're at this conference here the factory farm summit and um we've just heard amazing amazing things here today uh both Peggy and I are kind of blown away by uh by the activism uh and the stories uh, uh here mm. um so uh at some point uh, I'll have to uh, tell you about uh, uh some of this stuff but yeah, the good great. the good news was we woke up uh drive, we drove in uh spotty brain showers to get to Green Bay Wisconsin yesterday uh, this morning, mm-hmm. this yep. morning, not a cloud in the sky, uh, and it right, was beautiful. Yeah,
6: I stepped outside to move the car over so we could bring some things in, and fifty-five degrees, brilliant sunshine, northwest wind. It was just that crisp. Suddenly, it
0: was fall. Yeah, yeah, and this is one of the reasons why people love to go leaf peeping uh, this time of the year. Not only do you have you know abundant amount of uh, flora and also apples and cherries and things like that. But yeah, this is, this is, I always think the best time of the year to head up into, uh, northern Wisconsin, the UP of Michigan, uh, obviously the Door Peninsula, uh, not only because the weather is beautiful, but the, the Great Lakes are pretty warm, Mike. Right? 74 degrees of the water temperature in the south buoy of Lake Michigan, uh, 72 off, offshore Sheboygan. Uh, and even up in the Lake Superior, uh, the Lake Bowie was showing uh, nearly 65 degrees, and and all those reports about four to five degrees warmer than they were last year. So, if anybody wants to get up and go to the lakes this time of the year, it's uh, it's a good time to do it. Uh,
1: it, it absolutely. And uh, I was struck. Uh, I think it was last week when you were doing when we had uh, DeMio Palooza. And you came into the studio, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we, we got a great response to that. People really like listening to you, especially when I wind you up and turn you loose.
0: Um, and then you I'm just... still upset that you um, held back on pulling out a knife and fork so I can delve into the apple pie that I bought for you guys. How was it, by the way?
1: Oh, my goodness. It
6: was excellent. All right, it was let me, incredible. Let
1: me put it this way. Uh, I brought it home. And Kathleen said, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I'm probably not going to have any because those, most of those pies, they're, the filling's too gooey and sweet and the crust is usually not that good. (laughs) And then she tasted it (laughs) and said, Oh, I was so wrong. Uh, Yeah,
0: all excuses are (laughs) off. That's right.
1: It was, it was magnificent. Just an amazing pie. So thank you so much for that. Thank you.
0: yeah, don't don't invite me back every week because I'm not coming back with more pie.
1: <laughs> okay, if 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 it's just the pie stopping you, well then you don't have to bring pie every time you come to the studio.
6: But you do, yeah, do well, need I'm, to come back before a year from now. That's for sure. Well, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Teg, I missed that. Oh, I said you will need to come back into the studio sooner than a year from now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do that. Um, why don't you guys buy a nice cherry pie? From that part of Wisconsin, and bring it south and and freeze it, and then we'll thaw it out <laughs> and put some vanilla ice cream on it. When the next time I come
1: back, uh, but what uh, we'll do that, okay? We'll or something yeah. like or or cheese. Maybe it'll be cheese. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but cheese, cheese,
0: cheese on anything with Wisconsin is good, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, just like ice cream on anything is you know even steak. Who cares? Uh, but um, I was you're talking about the temperatures of the lake uh, and the mm-hmm. Great Lakes. Um, and it's so interesting how that changes weather. You, you, when, when we had Mayo Palooza last week, you were talking about how that's going to have an effect on what happens as we go into the winter here because of uh, the warmth. Uh, and right. that, that continues, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that we, we've noticed is that even though the um, Atlantic has gotten somewhat more active and it looks like we're going to have warmer than normal temperatures, still through the first couple of weeks of, or at least I should say, week two, three, and possibly even four of September. um, We haven't seen much in the way still in the last week of, of any, you know, active typhoons in the Western Pacific. Those are the things that when they come across the top of the North Pacific into Alaska and Canada, that when they drop southward, and we've seen this many times before, is they generally tend to pull very cold air down over the Great Lakes. And I remember this very well, Mike. I think it was about 15 years ago, when they turned up around Eagle River, and it was the first week of October, and we had a massive cold outbreak, and we had about four to five inches of lake-effect snow. So this time of the year, because the Great Lakes are warmer, they generally generally tend to add to the instability of the atmosphere and add more lake-effect snow, which, you know, of course, even if they do get some this time of the year, it doesn't last long, but it definitely does add to... Um, either warmer temperatures to the air uh, and the the Great Lakes, but also makes that possibility of having lake effect snow uh, that much greater.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, then that's one of the reasons we might see uh, snow. Uh, But as you mentioned last week, uh, and I want to make sure that this is still what you're thinking as we go into this winter, uh, because a lot of people want to know, you, you basically said last week you looked at it to be more or less normal.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and and I think those those predictions still hold. I, I think once you get into late September, early October, we see the dwindling effects of the tropics, and you get more into you know generally what we call synoptic scale weather patterns, these are the big weather systems that generally last three to five days, cover an area of about two to three thousand feet or two to three thousand miles rather. And what we saw last week with with Hurricane Hermine was how well that storm lasted over the northeastern sections of the united states due to the fact that the water temperature um the the jersey and long island coast are still about running 80 to 82 degrees fahrenheit that's that's incredibly warm so what ends up happening is when you start to get these storms that kind of move further north a little bit later in the year it delays the onset of the incoming cold weather but oftentimes it pushes the cold air, Mike, into a much smaller area so that when it eventually does come south, it, it comes in with a lot more vigor. Mm-hmm. And that could be what we could see around here in like late October and early November. But again, once those tropics become less of an impact, we, we go right back to a more normal pattern, and that's pretty much what we think was gonna happen around here by the middle of November.
1: Ah, okay. And last week we were talking about uh, a number of storms in- in the Caribbean and, and heading over to our part of the world, um, has what's happened since then?
0: We had Hurricane Newton uh, move into the southern parts of Arizona. I think that was the one that the um, oh their uh, that from Annie yeah, was worried about, yeah, right, Annie? Uh, right. That produced two to three right, Annie. That produced two to three inches of rain in the Tucson area, which was a record for them. But those storms quickly dissipate when they move inland. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a new storm that's trying to develop in the eastern Gulf of Mexico. Could become a tropical storm. Um, right now it doesn't look like it's got anything going for it, but, the, but our third eye is kind of watching it. Yeah. Uh, but there is one storm that looks like it's going to become a category 4 typhoon that'll move into the, uh, uh, the island of Taiwan. But that one, again, looks like it's going to move into China and dissipate very quickly. Um, Again, it's any storms that develop across generally east of Japan is what we worry about, how that's going to impact our weather here in the United States. Other than that, uh, we've been enjoying some very, very nice weather after we had two hellish days of heat and humidity. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen my dew point temperatures in the upper 70s like we had around here earlier this week. And again, a large part of that was due to the, the heavy rainfall that we had. So some of the maps that I send you for the last 30 days, yeah, showed some areas to the south of Kankakee had anywhere between 15 and 18 inches of rain, Yikes. which is which is just remarkable. Yeah, um, And then all that, obviously, all that humid weather is now pushed off to the east, and then we've gotten now into a dry pattern. And it looks like we get into a little bit more seasonal weather between here and probably the next two weeks. I I think the chances of seeing real hot and humid weather for at least any the extended period of time is pretty much over with at this point. But still... Looking back at how warm we were, the overnight lows were in the upper 70s, which is actually one degree off the warmest overnight low temperature ever for the 7th of September. That's that's pretty impressive stuff.
1: Absolutely. So, why it's uh, is that the forecast, or you want to give it to uh, a little more detail?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I'll go into detail. Uh, so, I, anyway, uh, I you mentioned, up there, even in northeast of Wisconsin, gorgeous today. This is about as good as it gets. Sunshine, uh, 75 today. Uh, normal high at 77. I think what's interesting to note, Mike, is between now and the end of next week, we lose a total of 10 minutes on the sunrise and 10 minutes on the sunset. That's 20 minutes of sunrise. We lose in one week this time of year, which is phenomenal. Um, Mid-70s tomorrow, um, upper 70s on Tuesday with a little bit of rain, and then we get right back into a beautiful area of high pressure that settles southward out of Canada, and we go right back into the lower 70s for Wednesday and Thursday, before maybe back into the mid 70s on Friday. So overall temperatures near or slightly below normal uh, for the next seven days, which is a far departure from where we were last week. So no humidity. And even if we do get some rain on Tuesday, we're looking at probably less than about a half inch. So I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of next week, uh, the ground looks a little cracked, it looks a little hard because um, we're gonna be drying out a little bit. And with a little bit of sunshine, you can lose some, you know, halfway decent moisture out of the soil.
1: Wow. Well, it's a it's a good thing in my yard. Uh, most of the crops are about done. Um, <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, th- that's done. And after a couple of cool nights, um, I think the, the the cicadas are beginning to snuff it as well.
1: Yeah. Well, my kale uh, and, and collards are still rocking, but uh, some of the other stuff, the tomatoes, the tomatoes not are so much. Slowing down. Yeah, the tomatoes are definitely slowing. Tomatoes are slowing down. Hard, the zucchinis. Uh, yeah and the zucchini uh, uh well it got powdery mildew and it's gone. So uh how's your uh uh your back?
0: My my my, my back is good. Uh, <laughs> I actually got a couple of days swimming in yeah? in the beautiful 74 degree lake water. Uh but luckily I was able to rest it quite a bit yesterday due to the fact that I binge watched eight consecutive episodes of Star Trek because they were <laughs> um basically they were doing um, you know you know for the 50th yeah, anniversary 50th. of star trek and uh, oh, I didn't
1: know that okay yeah
0: there's there's nothing there's nothing better than star trek on a saturday the, afternoon
1: the the original right
0: oh god yeah the original is the only way to go
1: <laughs> well i'm kind of a <laughs> next generation fan myself so uh, uh, that's why I, I do those spots for uh, attack of the killer asparagus um okay rick Demile, get the, get that back better because you know you know why cuz uh, i've got plans for us all right All right, Rick DeMaio, meteorologist extraordinaire. Uh, No DeMaio Palooza this week, but uh, a lovely forecast anyway, and we we appreciate
6: it. We'll look for some cheese or pie for you.
1: Yeah.
0: That that sounds good, and thanks for that, pick.
1: Before we go, uh, we're in overtime, and we appreciate you listening to the Mike Novak show after 11 a.m., but uh, we have a few things that we wanted to discuss before... Oh, you need your mic up. That's right. Okay, I can do that. Did I pull? I pulled down the wrong fader. There we go. The
6: phone was still on. Hey,
1: come on! It's it's like piloting a space shuttle here. You know, if you could Speaking see, all, we should just take a photo of this. Okay, I'm <laughs> going to do that because this is crazy.
6: This is crazy. Well, it's been really interesting to be watching everything that's happening. The uh, Dakota Pipeline protests are all about the Missouri River and all about the waters and and the tribal lands the protests that have been happening for Line 5 in Chicago on September 1st and September 3rd in the Straits, it's about the water. And here, we're hearing again and it's again. It's the water, stupid? It's the water, it? yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's having that concern for the next generation and seven generations ahead, which the United Nation was discussing last night. And uh-huh. it's... Oneida, it, not uh,
1: United Nations, but Oneida. Oneida, e i d a. Right.
6: And it, I, I think some of the... The key is people keeping that in mind—that it's the water, it's the landscape, it's children and children's children—and and it's not just the money.
1: Right, exactly. Because the, the this this famous saying about not being able to eat money at the end of the day, um, and the remarkable decision by the Obama administration to to stop the uh, pipeline from being built mm-hmm. at least for the present—I saw a lot of people celebrating online this week and my response is yeah but this is temporary it's like don't get don't get ahead of yourself here
6: it's the pipeline on the army corps land not the rest of it
1: right but it does stop it right you know at least part of that and and at least you know as as we were i was talking to mike wiggins jr last night who is he's a uh, former chairman of the bad river band of lake superior chippewa and he's Part of that interview was at the very top of the show, if you if you caught that. And you know he he recognizes that this is a moment in history when a lot of the Indian tribes are coming together and actually being heard. Yes. And and he mentioned how it's a peaceful confrontation that they seek, um, and it is good finally to have mm-hmm. uh, some of that happening and um, uh, on a national scale and perhaps even a global scale. Uh, although there's that uh, arrest warrant out for Amy Goodman yeah. from uh Democracy Now and I'm like okay yeah why don't you arrest Amy that would be that's that's real helpful to uh, the government cause isn't it uh not so good all right so we covered everything uh I want to thank everybody who was on the show today this has just been a remarkable i and I probably use the word remarkable too much today outstanding how's that An outs- amazing amazing um Summit and um, Show and uh, I want to thank First of all the socially Responsible agricultural project SRAP uh, for inviting Us here and helping Us with logistics Uh, It's it's just been Great and Steve is walking by right Now thank you Steve for all your help Uh, And Karen Hudson and Danielle Diamond And And Mary uh, And Kendra right uh, who helped Us uh, and then the, some of our guests, Mary Doherty and uh, Nancy Utesh, uh, Maria Pay- Payan, uh, Michelle Merkel, Dr. John Ikerd, and, of course, Rick DeMaio and you, and Peggy. And George Burgandy. And George Burgandy in the studio. George, you're awesome, dude. Uh, thank you for getting us out. We've been you know, texting back and forth and saying, hey, how's it sound? How's it sound? And they said, sounds great. I cannot wait to get this podcast Mm -hmm. up because it is so important.
6: And I want to say something about the podcast because if this is a topic of interest to you and to your community, don't just listen to the podcast, please share it. Share it on Facebook, tweet it, share it on your other social media and let people know so that they can listen and also join in and learn more about factory farms.
1: So from Green Bay, Wisconsin and the 2016 Factory Farm Summit, Go green or.
6: Go home.
15: Uh,
10: Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it?
12: Yes, it's over. How'd you like it?
10: I don't know. I slept through the whole thing.
12: Well, you didn't miss much.